Good morning, Bethesda. Before I get into the message this morning, I want to share a testimony with you guys about something that happened yesterday. As many of you or most of you know, on the second Saturday of every month, Bethesda School of Ministry goes to a laundromat. We go to the same laundromat. We have developed an incredibly wonderful relationship with the owner of that facility. And so Saturday, yesterday, we went just like we normally do. We just went at a different time because we wanted to capture a different group of people. And so Pastor Jose Luis from our Spanish service um, went with us. And so we went, we did all the normal stuff. We did laundry, we loved on people, we fed the children fruit and gave them water and we had activities for the kids at the end of the day 11 people had accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior hallelujah And because Bethesda isn't just this group in here, Bethesda is six different language services going on sometimes all at the same time. Pastor Jose Luis went and picked up several of these families this morning and brought them to church. So God is good. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you do not have your Bible with you, we're going to have that passage projected um, on the screens behind me. I'm going to read this passage. We're going to pray. And I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about when our dark places become holy places. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's reign, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we come before you this morning. Father, you are the one who searches and knows the hearts and minds of every man and every woman. There's nothing about us that's hidden from your sight. And we are asking, my Father, that this morning you would stir our hearts with righteousness, that you would take coals from off your own altar and ignite our hearts with a fire for the kingdom of God and for your Son. You know the condition of every son and daughter in this house. You know the condition of every son and daughter that will be listening by satellite. Nothing escapes your gaze. And we are bold this morning to ask you in the name of Jesus that, my Father, you take those dark places, those dark moments in our life, and you allow them to become a holy place because it becomes a place where we meet with you. I ask more than anything else that King Jesus, your name be exalted in everything that's said and everything that's done this morning. For it is in your excellent name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Most of the time when someone reads the book of Ezekiel, the thing that they are most mindful of are the visions of the will within the will. They are mindful of the visions of the creature that has four different faces, or they remember the valley of dry bones. But very few people know 
about the prophet Ezekiel himself. And that's my emphasis this morning. I want us to look at a man of God who found himself in a very dark moment of his life. The background of the book of Ezekiel is a dark background. There's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the north, that's Israel, and there's the kingdom of the south, that's Judah. In 722 BC, the kingdom of the north, Israel, fell to the Assyrians. But the kingdom of the south, Judah, survived for just a little bit longer. You would think that the kingdom of the south would have looked and saw what happened to her sister Israel and would have made her ways right with God and would have cut herself off from idolatry and pagan practices. But that wasn't the case. Judah, the chosen people of God. Judah, the kingdom that had the temple in its midst. Judah, who had the king from the lineage of David. They failed miserably in their relationship with the Lord, and they continued in their idolatrous practices until a people called the Babylonians arose, and in 586, they conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and in three deportations took all the people of Judah into Babylonian captivity. Now, 586 is the date that the temple was completely destroyed and the date of the last deportation. Those three deportations took place over a period of about seven years. The first deportation, the Babylonians came in and they took the leaders of Judah that they decided that if they are going to have control and power over Judah, it's going to be because they eliminate the leaders in her midst. But that wasn't enough. They came back and did a second deportation. And in this deportation, they took all the priests. They took all the men and women who had any inkling of leadership at all. Anyone who might start a rebellion against the Babylonians. And they took them in to captivity. Now, I wanted to put this history out there for you because it's Ezekiel's history. But can I tell you, the enemy's plans and schemes have not changed. If he wants to take someone captive, he doesn't look for the people that are no threat to the kingdom of God. If he's going to attack, if he's going to try to subdue and darken someone's mind and understanding, it will be those men and women who are potential leaders in the kingdom of God. If you are here this morning and you are under attack, rejoice and be exceedingly glad because you have proven to be a threat to the enemy and to his kingdom. Amen. So that's the background. The people of God are apostate. The Babylonians have rule and reign over the people of God. This Babylonian exile is going to last approximately 70 years. If you want to read about the background later, it's found in 2 Kings chapters 22 through 25. This deportation, this Babylonian captivity is such an intense moment in Judah's history that even today, if you talk to someone who is Jewish or of Jewish descent, they will refer to the two captivities of the people of God. The first captivity being the Babylonian captivity and the second captivity being the captivity that lasted in excess of 2,000 years when Israel was driven out of her homeland and only restored in May of 1948. The captivity of the Babylonians has scarred or at least molded the minds and the imaginations of every Jew. But we're no different. Don't we chronicle history? Don't we rewrite time 
according to the events of our own life. Now, I'm in my 50s. I won't say 50 what, but 50-something. I'm in my 50s. On April 3rd of 1974, I was a kid living in North Alabama. I'll never forget that day, and neither will anyone who lived through it. In a span of about 18 hours, 148 tornadoes verified ripped through the eastern and southern states of the U.S. And that night, some of you are shaking your head because you remember that night. There were 53 F1 tornadoes. There were 66 F2 and F3 tornadoes. There were 29 F4 and F5 tornadoes. The majority of the F4 and F5 tornadoes ripped through North Alabama. The one that was the strongest, it had winds recorded in excess of 120 miles per hour, ripped through an area between Huntsville, Alabama, and Athens, Alabama, and that area is called Harvest, Alabama, and that's where I lived with my family. I'll not forget that day. I won't forget what I was wearing. I won't forget the look on my brother's face. I won't forget the fear in my dad's voice. I won't forget looking at the sky, and it looked like someone had bruised it. It was green and purple and blue. Everything was still. Even and I lived out in the country. Even the birds stopped singing. The dogs weren't barking. There was no noise. It's as though all of nature knew that something devastating was about to happen. And even as a child, I could feel that moment. As the night wore on, I remember my dad looking into the sky toward the east. And he said, I've never seen anything like this before. And I turned my gaze to where my dad was looking. And there wasn't one funnel headed in our direction. There were two funnel clouds headed right in our direction. My dad at that point loaded us into the family car and drove us to the church, which was about half a mile away. The church was the only building in our, in our area that had a basement. And so we joined the rest of the neighborhood in that basement. This is what I remember. The men would stay above ground because my dad at that time wasn't a Christian and he wasn't going to actually go into the church unless his life was being threatened. So some of you know my dad or someone like him. I remember with my mom crying and in a very dramatic panic state in that moment. I remember that even though it wasn't time for the sun to go down yet, it was black outside. There was no rain. There was no lightning. There was just this ominous, threatening moment. And then you heard it. It sounded like a freight train. It actually sounded like several freight trains coming in our direction. I heard people crying. I heard people saying, save me, Jesus. I heard people saying, help me, Lord. I heard all kinds of cries that night. And I, heard, I saw moms gather their children into their arms. There was a moment as the tornado passed over us that even in the basement, the light fixtures began to shake. And of course, no electricity was with us at that time. The light fixtures began to shake and you could almost feel the ground move as that tornado cut its path right across where we were. We come out of that moment and that tornado that night, or all of those tornadoes that night, cut a path of 2,500 miles across the southern part of the United States. If you take all of the states 
Together, there was the loss of over 315 lives. Over 5,000 people were injured, and tens of thousands of people were left without homes. And out of the 315 people that lost their lives that night, 79 of them were from North Alabama. In my hometown, all you have to say are the tornadoes of 74, and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about because we chronicled history by that night. Now, as I'm sharing this story with you, some of you are thinking about events in your own life, holidays, devastating moments, car wrecks, house fires, things that happened in your life by which you began to chronicle history, and set your own internal emotional clocks. I spend time talking with you about this morning because whatever you have gone through, it could not even begin to compare with the deportation and the exile that Ezekiel was experiencing. Of all the things that would happen in Ezekiel's life, this would be the most devastating We know that the journey from Judah to Babylon is going to be 900 miles. It's going to take four to five months of walking in order to get from Judah to Babylon. We know that because Ezekiel is going to be a part of that second deportation, that in that route, that 900-mile journey, he's going to see the remains of sons and daughters of Israel that died on the way. I think that that's going to have such an impact on him that when he sees his vision of dry bones, that's what's going to stir that imagery in his mind. This deportation, this exile was such a dark moment in Israel's history and in Ezekiel's life that it's going to redefine Judaism for the rest of history. They're in a moment of darkness. Their darkness is going to last 70 years for the Babylonian exile. Darkness, as we understand it, is the absence or the concealment of light. Darkness itself is not an entity. Light is. But when light is removed, darkness is what happens. We know that there's spiritual darkness. Because before we met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, every one of us walked in spiritual darkness. Anyone who's here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are walking and living in spiritual darkness. Psalm 107, verses 10 and 11 says, There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're in this place this morning and you're in spiritual darkness, there is a cure for that, and it's called salvation. Because when you come to faith, In Jesus Christ, when you believe that he is the Son of God and that God has raised him from the dead, his light, his presence dwells within you. And you are no longer a child of darkness, but you become a child of his marvelous light. But just as surely as there's spiritual darkness, there's physical darkness. If we were to turn all the lights out this morning and pull the shades, we would be in physical darkness. But the cure for physical darkness is really easy Turn on the light. 
So if you're in physical darkness and that physical darkness bothers you, just turn on the light. But the darkness I want to speak with you about this morning is emotional darkness. It's a darkness that Ezekiel experienced. It's a darkness that brings with it disappointment. It's a time of disorientation, disillusionment, and discouragement. As children of God, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we do not walk in spiritual darkness because the light of the world takes up residence within us at the point of our salvation. But I have, from my own personal experience, from the pages of Scripture, and through conversations that I've had with many of you, I recognize, I understand that there are times when we all go through times of emotional darkness. It's a part of our fallen and broken humanity. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, the first thing that we are told is that it's in the 30th year. In the 30th year of what? In the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. He's 30 years old. We learn from these first three verses that he is the son of Buzi and that he is training to be a priest. He's been in captivity since he was 25 years old. We know that he's a priest, the son of Buzi. According to biblical law, he would train his entire life to be a priest. And then at the age of 30, he would step into that office. He would be fully qualified to wear the robes and to perform the ceremonies and the sacrifices and to bless the people. Instead of celebrating his inauguration into the priesthood, the ancient Israelite priesthood, Ezekiel finds himself in captivity. The priestly office would require a temple. The temple's been destroyed. It would, it would require a geographic location, Jerusalem. They've been removed from Jerusalem, and now they are in a foreign land. It would require animals for sacrifice, and there would be none. It would require the articles or the instruments of the temple, and they would have all been taken by the Babylonians. All these are gone and they're out of reach for Ezekiel. Instead of being a priest, Ezekiel finds himself a captive living in a foreign land with no real expectation of ever being able to step into the destiny that he had trained for all of his life. The first thing I want you to see about Ezekiel's life is that he is not doing what he expected to be doing at this time in his life. If I were to have a conversation with every one of you, you could tell me that presently or at some point in your life, there has been a moment when you were not doing what you thought you would be doing. You maybe have your degree in this, but the only job that you can get is in that. Your experience may be in this over here, but the moment demands that you go and do something over here. But what you are doing is not what you thought you would be doing. This is not the way Ezekiel would have written this chapter of his life. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us in this place this morning would say, where I am right now is not exactly where I dreamed of being at this point in my life. I know that most of us, if we are not feeling that way right now, we have had moments in our life where we have felt that way. So in his 30th year, he is by the river Chabar. The presence of God is so closely connected with the temple in Jerusalem that it's unthinkable 
to the ancient Jewish mind that God would be able to reveal himself, manifest himself anywhere except in Jerusalem. And now they are geographically removed from that location. Ezekiel's God is geographically leashed to Jerusalem. They would be hanging their harps in the willows and singing sad songs because they're in a foreign land separated from the presence of God. Have you ever noticed that when God puts you into a difficult moment and a difficult situation, what he tends to do in our lives is rewrite our theological understanding to where it's no longer based on what we thought or what we felt. And he shows himself to be bigger than anything we could have ever imagined him to be. See, Ezekiel thought that God was landlocked to Jerusalem. But he goes into Babylon to find out that our God is so great that even when his people go into captivity, guess what? He goes with them. That's the great message of the book of Ezekiel, that even when we find ourselves in dark moments, we may feel alone, but we are not alone because God goes with us. Babylon is not the place where Ezekiel expected God to reveal himself, to manifest his presence. This is not where he expected to encounter God. Sometimes in our imaginations, I think that we think, okay, I'm going to meet with God, and I'm going to meet with God at 4700 North Beach Street at Bethesda Community Church because that's just the place where God meets with people. But maybe you're not able to get to the building. Maybe you need for God to show up in a really messy situation. And you're thinking this situation is too bad for God to invade, too bad for God to show up in the middle of. Can I tell you the God I serve specializes in showing up in messy places? When I was 19 years old, my life was a mess, and he showed up in the mess that was me, and he saved me. I look over here at the ladies of Teen Challenge. Before they met Jesus, they were in a mess. And Jesus stepped into their mess and saved them, cleansed them, and redeemed them. He's not doing what he thought he would be doing. He is not where he thought he would be. We also find out that he is among the exiles. He's not hanging out with the priestly who's who. He's not hanging out with the royalty and the upper echelons of Judah. He's with the exiles by the river Chabar. He's no longer afforded the luxury of separating himself from the laity. He has no special status. He's just an exile. He even has a new identity. He is not Ezekiel, the up-and-coming priest from the lineage of Levi. Everyone here by the river of Chabar is in the same threatening situation. They are exiles. He's not doing what he thought he would be doing. He is not where he thought he would be. He's not with the group that he thought he would be with. When we go through a dark moment, those moments reduce us to the most basic ingredients of who we are. I've heard Pastors Dez and Pastor Dan say, if you're going to get married, make sure you know that person in all the seasons of their life. My behavior when the sun is shining and the checking account is full and life is good, my behavior is different than when there are storms on every front. The enemy's attacking on every side. 
and I don't have what I think I need to survive the moment. Who I really am comes out when the lights go out. And I cannot emotionally see my way. Dark moments reduce us to the most basic ingredients of who we are. We are all broken human beings, fighting disappointment, disillusionment, disorientation, and discouragement. But because of the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ, that does not have to be the end of our story. Ezekiel's not alone in his experience of a dark season. This dark season is marked by doing what he did not expect to be doing in a place where he did not expect to be ministering to a people that he did not expect to be ministering to. Ezekiel joins ranks with Moses. I think Moses thought he was going to be a prince in Egypt. But instead of being a prince in Egypt, he ends up being an exile into the desert of Midian for 40 years. And if that's not bad enough, God calls him to go back to Egypt and bring back and herd a group of kittens. <laughs> or at least that's the way I read it. That's not the way Moses probably wrote his story the first 40 years of his life. We join David. David, who had it prophetically declared over him by Samuel that he was going to be the king of Israel. He was the armor bearer of Saul. People sang songs about David. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. He's married to the daughter of Saul. He is up and coming until Saul decides that David's too much of a threat and begins to try to kill David. David allows fear to grasp his heart, and he takes off running for his life. Let me just throw a caveat in here. Fear will make you do stupid every time. David goes to the priest at Nod. There he asks, is there a weapon? And the priest at Nod said, there's only the sword of Goliath whom you slew. You would think bells would have went off in David's head and went, that's right, he gave me the bear, he gave me the lion, he gave me the giant, he'll take care of me in this situation too. But fear has grasped his heart and he says, give me that sword. Have you any bread? And he takes the bread of the priest. David, this great man of God, does not go to seek shelter. He runs straight to the Philistine garrison of Gath, carrying the sword of Goliath. He is immediately recognized. And people start whispering, is this not David who slew Goliath? Is it not sung of this man? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And David realizes that he is about to die if he doesn't get out of there. So he feigns madness. That's King James, for he acted like a mad person, allowing spittle to drip off his beard because he knew that the Philistines believed that anyone who was mad was possessed by a god and they would not harm him. That's the first smart thing David did. <laughs> he gets out of the Philistine garrison of Gath with a Philistine escort. And there he goes to a cave called Adullam. If you've ever been in the cave, one thing you should know about caves, they are dark. They are so dark that you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. Adullam means a place of no foreseeable future. There in the cave of Adullam, a place where David could not see what the next step was going to be, a place where he had no foreseeable future, there in that place, David writes Psalm 34. I think that this is 
dark behavior for every follower of Jesus. Psalm 34 starts off like this. I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Church, when we find ourselves in moments of darkness, even when we don't feel it, I love the song that we've been doing. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working on me. Even in those dark moments, God is working in your life and working in my life. We don't see it. We don't feel it. But can I tell you, I don't have to see and I don't have to feel to give him the honor and the glory that's due his name. We join Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that Uzziah died, in the worst year of his life, I saw the Lord. We see it with Job, who lost everything, but at the end of it, he said, shut my mouth. I have said things too great for me, and now I have seen him, and I know him. We join ranks with Daniel who was captive and spent the night in the lion's den. I can think of no darker place than spending the night in a cave with a bunch of ferociously hungry lions. But in the morning, Nebuchadnezzar comes to fetch Daniel, and Daniel says, my God has shut up the mouths of the lion. In those dark moments, when you feel like the enemy's pressing in on you, know this, there may be hungry, ferocious lions all around you, but we have a God who knows how to seal their mouths. Amen. Hallelujah to that. We join ranks with Joseph. We join ranks with Paul and with Peter and a host of other men and women throughout Scripture who in a moment of darkness decided that they didn't have to feel it, that they didn't have to see it to know that God was working on their behalf. Any man or woman who seeks to serve or to know the Lord will find themselves going through moments of darkness. But Isaiah chapter 45, verse 3, it's a little passage of Scripture that always stirs my heart. And I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. This passage is powerful because it reminds us that when we go through dark moments, there are treasures there that the Father can give to us. Let me just go through some things that can come to us in moments of darkness. One thing you need to know is that darkness can last for a long time. Some of you know what that's like. There are some things that in time God may choose not to deliver us from. I think of Paul when he said, Three times I sought the Lord to remove this thorn in my flesh. But God said, My grace is sufficient for you. There are times when God asks us to lean on his grace and to lean on his sovereignty. I do not understand it now, but there is coming a day when I see him face to face and then I will know and be able to understand why so many people I love had to bear some of the things that they've had to bear in their lifetime. Psalm 88 talks about or is a prayer from a man going through a time of darkness. He starts out, even though he's going through darkness, he starts out, O Lord 
of my salvation. This psalmist is in a season of darkness and he's hurting, but he still believes. There's a great philosophical work that's been put into movie form called The Princess Bride. And in this movie, the pirate Roberts says to Princess Buttercup, life is filled with pain, your highness, and anyone who says different is just trying to sell you something. We know that in this world we have tribulation, but we know the one who has overcome this world. Darkness can last longer than we want it to. The second thing that we can gain from darkness is that dark seasons are the best seasons or times for learning about and experiencing the mercy of God. There are elements of God's nature that I will never know and experience without periods of darkness. I think of Joseph. Pastor Dan spoke of Joseph last week. I thought for just a moment he was going to preach my sermon, but thank God he didn't. Because then you'd have to listen to it twice. I can only imagine the suffering of Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, falsely accused, in a prison, years before he stood before Pharaoh, second in command of all of Egypt. But I believe that the reason Joseph was the great man that he became is because in those moments of darkness, God forged his character. I would love to say that God has made me in the bright, wonderful moments of my life, and I am who I am today because I've never suffered, but that would not be true. Everything we go through, every moment, every pain, every element of suffering we encounter in our life, if we will allow him, God will use that to forge our character and our nature and make us into men and women who can be used by God. If you were to read the Jewish commentary on the book of Genesis, the Bereshith, it would tell you that God only tests those for whom he has purpose. If you find yourself in a period of testing, in a period of adversity or darkness, know this, you're going through it because God finds something in you worth forging and bringing out. I'm not saying that we rejoice for the dark moments, but I understand that we can rejoice in all things and in all moments. What the enemy means for harm, God uses for our good. We found this with David. We find it with Job. We're going to find it with Paul. The best places, and this is the third one, the best places for our gifts and our callings to be developed and matured in us is during seasons of darkness. God does some of his most precious and holy works in our lives when we are in places of darkness. When we are in dark moments of our life, we have no audience. Sometimes we don't even have friends. When we are in moments of darkness, it will feel like everything around us has been removed from us and it's just us. But in that moment, we find out who we really are in Jesus and we find out that he is faithful and there's no shadow of turning in the one whom we serve and call Lord. Psalm 23 I think David may have been reflecting on this when he said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. I turned to this group over here because I think my Lord of the Ring fans are over here. 
If you read the book, The Return of the King, they're in a very difficult moment. Frodo is beginning to falter and weaken, and Samwise is extremely exhausted in their trek to Mordor to return the ring to its place so that they can end this reign of evil. Samwise, who I really believe is the hero in Lord of the Rings, Samwise is losing hope and growing faint of heart. So on the return of the king, instead of Samwise, but even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all of his limbs a thrill, as if he were turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. When I read that quote, what it stirs within my heart is in moments when I don't think I've got what it takes, Jesus makes up the difference. In those moments where my hope begins to falter and wane, the Spirit of the living God breathes fresh life into me. And I find hope that doesn't come from me, that doesn't come from my circumstances and situations. I find a hope that comes from the one in whom there is no shadow of turning. The fourth thing that we learn in places of darkness is that faith comes alive in places of darkness. We don't need faith when we can see it and when we can touch it. Faith is most important when we cannot see it and we cannot quite lay hold of that which God has promised us. In Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 30, Paul and Silas find themselves arrested, beaten, and thrown into prison because they were preaching the gospel. They were doing exactly what God told them to do. This is their moment, and they share the gospel of Jesus Christ and end up being beaten and thrown into prison with shackles on their hands and on their feet. It's dark for them. They're in physical pain. I'm sure that there's some emotional angst along with that. But at the midnight hour, instead of singing, woe is me, doomed despair and agony, Paul and Silas begin to sing praises to God. And in that dark place, the light and the glory of God, who is his son Jesus, illuminated that place, sent an earthquake, set them free, and all the prisoners... And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Sometimes God puts us in a dark moment so that we can begin to sing praises and declare the greatness of God and raise our hallelujah, not for us, but for all the people around us. Faith comes alive in places of darkness. The truth about who I really am, the condition of my heart, is more clearly seen in seasons of darkness than in any other time. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Second, Corinthians, Second Chronicles 32, 31, referring to King Hezekiah, And God left him alone only to test him that he might know what is in his heart. There are moments in our life when we experience darkness because God wants to expose to us the true contents of our heart. In the darkest moments of life, 
God wrecked Ezekiel's old way of thinking and believing. And in the most defiled and unimaginable place ever, a place filled with idolatry and every vile practice, that's where God showed up and made himself known to Ezekiel and transformed his dark place into a holy place. Because you see, in the 30th year, by the river Habar, with the exiles, that's when Ezekiel saw God. That's when the heavens were open and the hand of God came upon Ezekiel. It is in your dark moments that the hand of God can come upon you and revelation can be yours and your dark place becomes a holy place. I cannot help, again, but think that when we find God in dark places, we join a long list of great and mighty men and women of God. Every person in this place, we all go through varying seasons of emotional darkness. Times when we experience discouragement, disillusionment, distress, and disorientation. Times when our faith is going to be challenged and our true selves in that moment or season is exposed. It's when we determine that we are going to follow Jesus. Even if we don't feel him, we know that he's working. Even when we don't see him, we know that he's working. Even when we feel alone and abandoned when we decide that the world is behind us and the cross is before us, that we just won't turn back. It's in these moments that our faith comes alive. Greatness begins to emerge in our life and our character begins to be forged. Micah chapter 7, verse 8, another one of my favorite passages. Micah says, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will arise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. There is no darkness, no darkness that any of us can ever go into that will eclipse the light and the power and the presence of God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. I wonder if these thoughts maybe we're not a little bit of what the great hymn writer was thinking when he said, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Thank you. If you are in this place this morning and you are walking through a season of darkness, I will not ask you to come up front. But if you are wanting to say, I am in that time of darkness, would you just stand and let me pray with you? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Father, there is none of us that would vote yes on seasons of darkness. But Father, there's not one of us that hasn't found ourselves in some event where it feels like the emotional lights are just turned out. Doing what we 
didn't expect to be doing in a place where we didn't expect to be doing it amongst those that we didn't expect to be doing it with. But Father, today, our faith is not in the darkness. Our faith is in you. And even when we don't feel it, we know that you're working. And even when we don't see it, we know that you are working. Because we've decided to follow you. And our declaration today, even when we can't see it, on Christ the solid rock we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. We ask you, my Father, to do your work in our lives that we might be everything that you've destined us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.